Greetings, friends. Welcome to Building Tradition, where we tell stories from builders, developers, designers, building owners. Building Tradition is produced by Traditional Building Magazine and TraditionalBuilding.com. I'm your host, Peter Miller. History informs the future, and so do our guests. We're talking today with Danushka Nanayakara the National Association of Home Builders Assistant, VP of Economic Forecasting and Analysis. I've seen and heard Danushka present housing forecast and trends a few times at NAHB events, so I asked her to speak with us about her outlook on residential housing for 2024. Danushka has a master's degree in applied economics from Johns Hopkins University, and a Bachelor of Arts degree in Economics and Business Administration from Otterbein University in Ohio. She has 15 years experience as an analyst, including a three-year stint at J.D. Power and now six years with the National Association of Home Builders. She speaks frequently with industry groups, recently at the Home Improvement Research Institute's conference, and soon at the annual 2024 International Builder Show in Las Vegas. Welcome, Danushka. Thank you, Pete. Happy to be here. Last month, November 2023, the NAHB Wells Fargo Housing Market Index reported that new home builder confidence had dropped each month for four consecutive months. But you have predicted that housing's future looks better than the immediate past. So how come the seesaw and what's going on out there? Yeah, um, we have, you know, gotten that question a lot. And we did some research on to see why there's a divergence on the outlook for uh, what the builders are saying, uh, like, you know, for their confidence and why the starts are actually doing better. Usually they go hand in hand. Um, and we looked at the, the makeup of the builders and the larger builders are feeling more positive, more optimistic, and it's the smaller builders. That's the share that's actually feeling more pessimistic about the future. And that makes sense because the smaller builders have issues access to financing. That's the biggest hurdle for the smaller builders right now. That's the acquisition development and construction loans where they're paying around 13 to 14%. And financing is not a big issue with the bigger builders. So that's where the HMI is actually, you know, only at 34 at this point. Um, But also we got this before the interest rates have started to normalize a little bit. It was approaching almost 8%. And right now, as of last week, it's at actually just above 7% too. So things are normalizing. So I'm actually really waiting to see what the December HMI looks like uh, to see if that has improved. So you make an interesting distinction between small builder demand for houses, but as you just explained, it's really the supply or the supply of their money to acquire land and get started breaking ground then, right? So that's yes, why their confidence is lower? Yeah, it's the acquisition, development, and construction loans. Interesting. So you also told us that the Northeast and Midwest regions seem to be holding their own while the bigger declines in housing are forecast for the Southeast and the Western United States. How do you explain the regional differences? 
It's interesting. Um, California has had a, I think, you know, some of the West Coast, but more expensive markets has had a harder time because of the pandemic. People moved out. Um, and, you know, the mountain states and the South actually made up ground because people were buying second homes, etc. during. But now that, you know, these big companies have asked people to come back, we are waiting to see what the population migration data looks like for this year. And interested to see how that means, what that means for housing as well. And if we look at 2022 data, just the South accounts for 99% of population increase and population drives housing. So markets in Texas, Florida, the Carolinas have done remarkably well. And also something to think about is the Northeast is more expensive. The West is more expensive. So the affordability is a real issue here at this point. The prices are, you know, almost 70% higher than the previous boom years. So, yeah, and the interest rates are higher. So people, if you have the, uh, I think the opportunity to be able to work from home or get a remote job. So people are moving to more lower cost areas. So that's one of the reasons I think the Midwest has, um, has going for it, especially places like Columbus, Ohio are doing really well. You used to so, live in Columbus and so did I. Yes. <laughs> so it's really interesting for me when I go back to see how much it has changed and developed. You know what I read? Columbus is bigger than Cincinnati and Cleveland combined. I believe it. So you talked about migratory patterns, big companies asking people to come back to the office. Do you think that if somebody moved from California to Tennessee during the pandemic, their California-based company might make them move back? I think um, the big companies have now mandated that you come into the office three times a week. Um, so I've just done informally, I've asked my friends who works at Amazon or Microsoft, Facebook, and they've all said it is compulsory to show up in the office three times a week now. And people, I've heard some people are quitting over that and yet yes. kind of can't blame these companies for having a big real estate footprint. They want to, they want to use it. Mm -hmm. So here again, you told me in October, Danushka, that the only state in the country showing an increase in single family construction permits was your home state of Maryland. So how come Maryland? What, and has that changed since you told me that in October? So it's Maryland and Hawaii. And I think um, Maryland, it's simply because, you know, it's D.C. suburb, like it's capturing people. It's hard, more expensive to live in D.C. D.C., let's face it, has a good job market. And I think people are just choosing to live um, in the in Maryland. And if you need to commute an hour at this point, like even if you drive 40 miles north, um, go past Frederick to Hagerstown area. People are commuting from there, which is completely mind-boggling to me that you're, uh, you know, willing to put up on the traffic on the Beltway, <laughs> but people are doing it. Um, so, and I was actually on a National Association of Realtor panel just a little while ago today. Even um, the realtors are expecting the DC metro area 
which covers um, Maryland and Northern Virginia, is expected to hold strong and be a good market for the coming year. Well, sure seems like it based on the the traffic that we fight through on our way to and from work. So Mm -hmm. you've also told us that there are 1 million multifamily units under construction this year. Can you tell me what's what's driving that growth in multifamily? Because I don't recall ever seeing more than a half a million multifamily units in prior years. And the second part of the question, are these affordable multi-housing units or middle market or luxury luxury apartments? So I think uh, what you're referring to is units under construction. Um, that is the highest level that we've seen since like the 1980s. Uh, the starts is different. Starts we've had last year for the first time, um, there was over half a million multifamily starts was uh, begun in 2022. Still the highest level since the 1980s. So the multifamily under construction right now has been in the pipeline for the last 12 to 18 months that has been driven by the low vacancy rates and the higher rents. So we are actually really excited for to see these apartments come onto the market because that should help stabilize the rent increase and desperately add the housing that we need. But that does not mean these are going to be on the affordable. They are mostly on market rate. So you know, whatever the local market dictates going to be the market rate is what these units are going to be priced at. Do you think there's competition, so to speak, between baby boomers and millennials for, in terms of the demand for those apartments? You have boomers who want to move down, you have millennials who want to move in. And it just seems like one of the things that's, one of the things that's driving prices is that huge demand of both those demographic cohorts. Yeah, so we have two demographics, very, very large demographics. So we have a share of the seniors and the baby boomers who are 55 plus that are driving some of that rental market too, but its majority is coming from the millennials who are unable to buy a home at this point or they have to delay purchasing a home just because it's just so much more expensive right now. So yeah, so there's enough demographics to support these um, apartments. And what we are also seeing is that the baby boomers are staying longer in their houses uh, without really downsizing as far. And I think that has to largely do with the pandemic. I think that has really changed um, a lot of the housing options for the seniors. And the fact that the, the young adults living with their parents has also been at historic highs at this point. So there are more multi-generational households going on too. So there's a lot of demand. You know, um, we just need more housing. We need supply. How come single family for rent is a trending market? It's not a big market, but it's on a percentage increase basis. It looks pretty big. What's, what's going on with single family for rent? Yeah, so the last, actually, last year was the um, highest market share in a while we saw in double digit market shares for that. And that's purely driven by, I think, people needing more space. Um, when we, we were asked to basically the economy shut down, people had to stay home. 
sometimes the apartments didn't really offer the room or the flexibility that people needed. So the single family built for rent market offered that space. And they're largely more tend to be like, you know, townhouses or bigger spaces than uh, multifamily. And come, I mean, realistically, not everybody could off, like afford to buy a house, even though you need it. So these rental market really um, expanded because of that. And there's a lot of movements happening too, migration. So if you're moving from one area to the other one, you cannot um, buy a house um, when you do that. So the single family market fits in there as well. So it's just basically lifestyle changes that people are going through that really pushed the market to expand last year. Yeah, I would add one other thing. I think especially among boomers, they don't want to live in one place. They want to live in two places, so they might as well just rent rather than own. So given this confluence of uh, almost a collision of demographic cohorts, boomers and millennials, talk to me about what millennials want in a new home and how does that differ from what baby boomers want in a new home? Oh, Pete, everybody wants a single family detached home. <laughs> the American dream. <laughs> the American dream with a white picket fence, right? Um, that's what everybody wants. Um, that's what we are seeing. People would love to have their space, their yards. Um, you know, now we are seeing more flex spaces people need office slash study or more um, like where you can actually use for mixed use spaces. You can use it as a gym or, you know, I think one of the things that coming uh, came out of the pandemic is the fact this is renewed interest in your home. So we see that on the remodeling spending where people are doing a lot of renovation projects. And then the fact that, you know, you, you really would love a bigger space. Although the new home data is showing that the home sizes are getting smaller um, because I think it's a fact that it's a higher cost to build. So one of the ways that the builders are tackling this high cost of production is reducing the square footage. But, you know, at the end of the day, everybody still wants their uh, single family detached home. So Almost every builder or architect I talk to says they have to, convince their client that they can live with something smaller, even though their dream is to, is to go big. Yeah. Danushka, you gave a talk to the Home Improvement Research Institute this fall. I know you know that the remodeling market is more difficult to track or to quantify than is new construction. What did you talk about with the home improvement industry and how does the NHB track the remodeling market? Yeah, so um, we talked about the housing market overall and how remodeling market is actually give, getting to be a bigger share than it used to uh, before, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And that's because of the fact that there's a few things driving it. Um, we have a really old housing stock in the U.S. that's over 40 years old at this point. So... We need like lots of more, re like, you know, if uh, like a remodel usually takes right after or before a home purchase and a home sale. So, you know, 40 years old home needs a lot more upgrading. 
And then the baby boomers are driving a large part of that too, because when they are now choosing to stay in place, as opposed to downsizing, there's a lot of age in place remodeling happening as well. And then, of course, we are seeing that, you know, the energy efficient component plays a big part of it, too. You want to, like, you know, minimize your utility costs and then you put in the energy efficient windows to all that sort of thing to minimize the housing costs. So we track the home improvement spending. It is much, you know, uh, everybody has a different measure, but that's what we track. And we are expecting the remodeling market to um, stay positive for the next couple of years, just because that, you know, people are staying in their homes longer. Mm -hmm. And because of the aging housing stock, we expect the remodeling market to remain solid. Yeah, north of a $400 billion market. My measurement is driving around the neighborhood and seeing how many dumpsters there are uh, collect collecting things that are being torn out and replaced. So if home mortgage interest rates fall back from, well, I think they already have, from 8%, where might they fall to and stay? Will we ever see anything below 6% or 5% like we did? Um, 5% probably not, but we are expecting somewhere for the mortgage rates to settle somewhere around 55 to 6 by like 2025, once the interest rates are normalized. So for next year, it's going to be still a little bit higher, I think, around six and a half. And then 2025 for the rates to fall somewhere between five and a half to six. I think I would love to see the rates around six at least, because I believe, you know, around that um, rate, we can bring in more of the sellers, convince people to actually sell and get, you know, level up buyers. Um, removing themselves from this golden handcuff situation where they're unwilling to let go of this subpar 3% rates. So I think five and a half to six is where I think the rates will eventually settle um, once the Fed decides to start cutting rates from next year. Right. So they can trade a five for a five rather than a three for a six or a three for a seven. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But do you think that when rates look like they're coming down, that takes some urgency out of the market because people want to wait and wait until they come down further? Or, I mean, it seems to me that the urgency is created when prices are going up, but not so much when interest rates are coming down. Yeah, I think it's still the fact that we don't have enough housing um, supply. It's still going to keep the uh, prices stable. And we are expecting around 1% to 2% home price growth next year. And if the rates come down, and I think what people have learned is, you know, those 25 3% is gone. I don't think ever going to come back to those levels again. And uh, more and more I talk to these other economists, they all feel 55 to 6 is somewhere that people will feel comfortable letting go of those low rates and to come back to the market. And then for the um, for the people who own their homes to actually put the mark, house on the market around those rates. Uh, yeah, you told me last time we talked that uh, people who bought houses in the 80s when interest rates were whatever, 17, 18%, you know, we think 6% is chump change, but then you reminded us, but the houses are like 10 times more expensive now, so... Yeah. It's not so easy. <laughs> exactly. When the wage growth has not kept up with the house price growth, 
uh, it's you know it's impossible for these younger um, households, younger home buyers, to actually keep the housing costs for less than thirty percent. That's I think um, the benchmark for economists for to figure out if a housing is affordable or not. It's become almost impossible. So you know the median home price is going for close to four hundred thousand dollars. It's crazy. Full disclosure, Danushka, I bought my house in. Washington, D.C., 1983 for $180,000. <laughs> Don't tell me. <laughs> I knew you'd laugh. <laughs> but interest rates were higher. Um, so we know that building regulations contribute to the cost of new home construction, and you've just talked about the median price. Uh, and regulation could add as much as 25% to the cost of construction. Can you give us examples of what those regulations are that are costing builders so much? Yeah, so we do this study every five years, and the latest study that we have in 2021 is showing us a dollar amount of almost $94,000. And for example, just the changes to building codes um, over the past 10 years adds over $24,000. And the architect- architectural design changes like you know figuring out the siding or the roofing elements you know, adds around $10,000. Um, so, you know, um, on NHP.org, we have the complete breakdown of this. You know, just the standards that goes beyond the normal adds about another $9,000. And then the fees that are paid by the builders after purchasing a lot comes to around $12,000. But the bulk of it comes from the changes to building codes. That's where the $24,000 are coming And in. that's all itemized on your website? What would yes. I, I'd go to nhb.org and then type in what? Uh, due to regulatory costs, you should be able to see, even on the ionhousing.org, we have a blog post associated with this. Um, Paul Emerath, who's the VP of Housing Policy and Survey, writes this, does this research every five years. And we use this all the time when we go to t- state and local um to talk about how much the regulatory cost is burdensome for the builders. Do you get a good hearing? Everybody's shocked, you know, when they see the numbers because people say, oh, you know what? Adding $1,000 here and there doesn't seem like a lot. But when you see the entire cost of it, it's, it's you know, quarter of the home price. It's a lot. Well, this question then may be relevant to, to those costs. Um Big home builders in particular are discounting their prices. Um, now, is this a correction for high, high housing prices or higher interest rates or or both? And are these incentives working to sell more houses for big builders? I think they're able to do that just because they are, you know, they have bigger pockets. But for the smaller builders that we capture on the HMI, they are doing around 6% price reductions at this point. Um, you know, which is as much as they could afford to, I think, at this point. But it's not a price correction for the home prices simply because right now the home prices are where it's at simply because there's a mismatch between the demand and supply. And the interest rates, you know, if they can buy back some points, they're doing that as well. They're offering that as an option um, to bring the rates down a little bit. They're doing that. Um, but these are some of these combinations that the builders are offering as incentives to keep the uh, potential buyers who are interested in purchasing uh, new construction. Right, right. 
I hear a lot about cash buyers, very likely people who have sold a big house and are moving to something smaller and or they have equity and cash. Do you have any statistics that would tell us what percent of the home buyer market is cash and what percent is interest rate? Um I don't quote me on this one, but I think it's around 10 to 11% are all cash buyers. Are cash buyers. Yeah. And then what about custom houses? Everybody wants to know, okay, well, there are production, well, just call it single family starts, call it 950,000. What percent of those or what's the number of truly custom houses? And I think I would define custom, not a semi-custom, a house that's built then with custom options, but a house on contract for an owner. Do you have any? So that's around 20% of single family market is custom home building. So give or take a couple hundred thousand units. Yeah. Um, and then townhouses is around about another 15%. Single family bill for rent is around at this point, maybe around 10 to 12%. So these are some of the sub-markets within single family. Right. Interesting. Because I never see an HB say, you know, 950 single family, of which 200,000 are custom. In our forecast, we don't break it down, uh, but we do write individual blog posts on Ion Housing that talks about the custom home building market, um, town home market, the single family bill for rent market. So we do talk about that. And those are quarterly posts because the data comes out once a quarter. Um, but we we aggregate them all to single family, one market when we talk about in general. Right. So what should we be expecting next year? Uh, slow first half, strong second half? Slow first half, simply because I think the momentum going into the fourth quarter and the first two first half of next year looks to be the economy wide, you know, slowing down. And, you know, the housing is a very interest rate industry, as you know. So I think until the interest rates kind of normalizes, I think we might see a slow start. But we are expecting calendar gains for single family starts next year, under a million um, units, however, but still a positive. Um, and multifamily is, uh, we're expecting the market to slow down a little bit just because of that large number of multifamily construction under, un under construction right now. Um, but overall, though, we should see a uptick um, in housing. But 2025 is where I think where single family could reach over a million units. And that's what I keep thinking is as long as there's all this demand, we'd have to have a pretty strong market. When do you think builder confidence will come back? I'm pretty sure, you know, early next year or even December when I'm just curious to see, we might see the rebound happening, but where it's over above 50 could be early next year. Am I going to see you at the International Builder Show in February? You know it. I'll be there. <laughs> You'll be giving another talk? I'll be giving multiple talks. <laughs> I'll be at all of them. I'll be at all of them. <laughs> Danushka, this has been fun. It's nice to see you again. Thank you so much, Pete. It's been a pleasure. And and for those listening, um, you can find Danushka's forecast and analysis on housing uh, at nhb.org. Thank you so much. I'm Pete Miller, and you're listening to Building Tradition. 
brought to you by Traditional Building Magazine. Our Building Tradition podcast is produced by Anne White with technical assistance from Nate Gruca. Subscribe on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.